We've been fighting a long time, and we've all lost so very much, so many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Ave Maricela Welcome everybody, Steve with Sense of Fidelity. I'm coming at with the third installment on our series on the councils of the church, going with the second and third councils of Constantinople. So get your popcorn ready for this one, ladies and gents. I think there's a lot of information as Dr. Allen was talking about to me off camera. Uh, notes will not be given to you. You have to do it on your own. Dr. Allen, how you doing, bud? <laughs> I'm doing well, thank you very much. Welcome, how's, there, how's things with you guys? Oh, a little bit of cabin fever, but you know, it's <laughs> relative you know, domestic bliss with the old outbreak of cabin fever. Dr. Femister risked life and limb to get the books for this episode, so please, you're undefined attention. <laughs> okay, um, uh, so um, the Second Council of Constantinople is was held in, in 553, um, about 100 years after the uh, council of Chalcedon, the previous ecumenical council, which was held in uh, 451, but went on for a few years. Um, and, um, uh, and then the third council of Constantinople was held in 680 to 681, uh, so uh, 130 years or so after the one before that. Um, and um, uh, they are, uh, they're, they're, they're a bit complicated um so don't don't switch off but um but the uh um they um a lot of people i think the first thing to say really is is that a lot of people think of the fourth ecumenical council chalcedon as if it sort of is the end of the story you know a bit like the return of the jedi <laughs> and then it turns out you know emperor palpatine's still alive and um the empire has been restored as the first order so 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 um i, I feel like um, captain america and avengers i got that reference <laughs> <laughs> um yeah so so in fact, uh, the, the Chelsea didn't really end it all at all. I mean, it kind of just opened it all up again. But um, but a lot of histories of, um, of of the early church will sort of end in four five one, um, which must be really irritating if you're Egyptian, uh, because uh, <laughs> the fact that it didn't end is a very very significant part of the history of, of Egypt. Um, but um, I think one of the reasons. Uh, the, the Westerners, uh, in the narrow sense of people from Latin civilization, 
rather than Greek. Um, one of the reasons Westerners in that sense um, uh, tend to think of it as being over is because it wasn't such a big deal for us in the first place. We were kind of like, oh, no, there's not a huge explosion of theological controversy on the other side of the Adriatic among those Greeks. And uh, the Pope's written them a letter explaining how it all works and they've read it out and, and they all cheered. And that's the end of that. Um, so, so in a way, that was kind of Western attitude. We didn't really have the, all the dynamics and politics and stuff that we discussed last time didn't impact so much in the West. We thought that we always just understood it and they didn't, but we told them and now it's okay. Um, and um, uh, the other reason is, is the Protestants, um, why, why this kind of mirage that all ended in 451, all these controversies about our Lord's nature ended in 451 came about is because a lot of uh, the more sane-ish mainstream in the sense old sense of mainstream protestant not in the new sense of not believing in anything at all and having women clerics and gay marriage and stuff i mean mainstream in the old sense of not not being completely wild and wonderful sectarians who don't believe in the trinity and and uh, all that kind of thing a little splash of catholic Catholicism still in there <laughs> right yes yeah they they generally hold to the first four ecumenical councils right up to chalcedon um, some of the very sort of would-be Catholic ones actually hold to, or usually factions within uh, more conservative Protestant denominations, um, like the Anglo-Catholics in, in the Church of England, who like to dress up and pretend that they're Catholics and worship bits of bread. <laughs> um, they, they, um, uh, they, they, they might adhere to the first seven ecumenical councils like the Orthodox do, but, mm -hmm. the, but usually more conservative, well-informed Protestants will just adhere to the first four ecumenical councils up to Chalcedon. So that's another reason why um, uh, it's often seen as the end of the story because the, the, those Protestants are not so interested in what happened afterwards. And so, you know, there's less market for a book ending in, uh, in um, 681 mm -hmm. compared to a book ending in, in, in 451. And as it's... Um, fiendishly complicated and difficult again don't switch off um uh they they um uh th there's a strong incentive both in terms of sales and in terms of, of the, the hassle to just call it a day in 451 and pretend that it was all over and we can all go home. just like a lot of people don't watch the prequels or the sequels they just watch the original trilogy anyway so um <laughs> <laughs> again don't switch off right so um <laughs> so um uh, yes. So what happened? Well, two things happened. Uh, the first thing is to understand the context of what happened in, in the hundred years between uh, the, the fourth and the fifth ecumenical council between Chalcedon and Constantinople II. Uh, there are two big contextual things to understand that happened. One is that the western half of the Roman Empire collapsed. Uh, it was a complete nightmare and uh, it was horrible for centuries. In, in the in the Latin speaking parts of the Mediterranean world, uh, and it sort of remained horrible on the uh, on the southern side of the Mediterranean because they ended up being conquered by the Muslims. And um, but but I mean, it eventually got better on the uh, northern shores of the Mediterranean. Mm -hmm. um, but it took many many centuries. Um, so so uh, and and that was already kind of going on while Chalcedon was going on. Uh, Attila the Hun was charging all over Western Europe with desperate Romans, with fewer and fewer troops and less and less money, desperately trying to hold the whole thing together. And in fact, they won a victory 
in Gaul um, uh, while the Council of Chalcedon was going on, um, uh, which which looked like it, you know, yay a victory. But I mean, they 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 kind of there's this guy called Aetius who sometimes gets called the last of the Romans who was sort of desperately running around hiring one barbarian tribe in order to fight against another barbarian tribe and uh, but when they when he'd won his victory you know there was there were no Roman soldiers left and there was no money left so it was kind of completely empty victory there was there was nothing nowhere to go from that point um in fact they were so desperate in the western half of the Roman Empire that they used to you know, not fully go into the kill in these battles mm -hmm. uh, because they didn't want to completely wipe out uh, one set of barbarians in case the barbarians they'd hired to do it turned on them. So they needed to keep uh, a, a residuum of, of the barbarians they defeated so they could hire them to fight against the barbarians who were fighting for them in that battle. Um, so it was desperate. Now, so very quickly, obviously, this is only kind of contextual important for the uh, for church history, but to explain roughly what had happened, I mean, because you've got to understand that the, that the first three councils, um, uh, and and to some extent the first four councils, were happening in the context of an empire which enclosed the whole of, 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 of what we now think of as Western civilization, um, the entire Mediterranean world. I mean, the, these kind of estimates about population are difficult, but some people would argue that we're talking about a quarter of the population of the world that lived under the same government for 500 years. Mm. Um, and so, I mean, it was it was their entire world, you know, and, and it, it felt like it was going to last forever. And and then suddenly in the fifth century, it didn't. It, it, half of it fell off a cliff and, and disappeared forever. Um, so, I mean, the, the, it was kind of complacency which brought them down in the end. I mean, um, the Romans had had uh, had always had this, the, you know, the, the empire was structured around the army. Um, there were a lot of people from recently conquered provinces who wanted to get citizenship and, um, and they would join the army in order to get citizenship. And after 20 something years, you could retire with a nice plot of land in a, in a different part of the empire from where you were from and sort of, you know, probably some sort of lump sum or whatever. And you would have been thoroughly Romanized through your time in the army. And that was a kind of way of churning the population around the empire. You Romanize them, you turn them into hard, hard, hardened soldiers, and then you plonk them on a, on some kind of estate on uh, thousands of miles from where they come from originally. And everyone slowly becomes Romans. Mm -hmm. And, um, and in fact, um, uh, over the course of, of Roman history from from the first century BC, uh, well, obviously it goes much further than that, but I mean, it would become Mediterranean spanning in the in the first century BC up until the time of the Council of Nicaea. Um, they'd slowly come to have this sense, not so much of, of the Romans being a bunch of people who've, who've conquered the world and who we have to do as we're told uh, when they tell us what to do. It, it's this sense of us all being Romans. So they start using this, this term Romania to just mean the territory that, that, that all the Romans live in. And even St. Athanasius, in fact, he's one of the earlier um, earlier sources for the use of this term Romania to mean to mean the, um, the, you know, the whole Roman world, as if it was like a country. And, um, and they used to call the Mediterranean R.C., uh, not R.C. in the sense of Roman Catholic, but uh, our C, um, uh, me meaning like the, the pool in the middle of our garden. Right, so so that that's what it was, and um, and uh, but uh, from 117 onwards, they didn't conquer any more provinces, and in 202, they granted citizenship to anyone 
born in the Roman Empire who wasn't a slave. And um, so slowly all the incentive for joining the army began to sort of drain away and, and more and more they started having to recruit people from across the frontiers of the empire, uh, more and more Germans, because uh, they never quite squished Germany. Um, it all went a bit wrong in the reign of the first emperor. There was a disastrous military reverse and they got their fingers burnt and they, 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 they sort of chastised them every now and again but they kind of left the border at the on the rhine river um and uh, but the germans were being recruited into the army because people weren't so interested in joining inside the roman empire and um and that was okay they were being romanized but the more and more you recruited them into the army the more bigger a job it was to romanize them because the more people who were already in the army were already um the dis descendants of german barbarians and um and the uh, and of course they they also because they if you keep expanding then the people on the edge of the frontier will be proper barbarians you know howling waving their spears and smashing them against their shields and and you know looking you know beardy and and not very civilized and, and you know basically scary but not as scary as Romans you know the Romans you know, were were you know in the first century you know they they were. It was um, this is a caricature, but but it was it was as if they had machine guns and the other guys had sharpened bits of fruit, and you know basically they were okay. There was yeah. no chance of the of the barbarians winning. But once you just sort of settle on the frontier, then then uh, slowly the other guys on the other side are going to start getting closer and closer to your level of military technology and 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 tactics and strategy and stuff, and you know. Um, before you know it, there's an improvised explosive device underneath your uh, your um, your Roman tank. Obviously, slight anachronism yeah, there, yeah. but anyway. Um, and um, uh, yeah, <laughs> yes. So um, so 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 the, the the gap was reducing, and on on the Roman side of the frontier, the army was becoming more and more Germanized. And um, uh, Saint Jerome said, uh, points out that this is essentially prophesied in the prophet Daniel, where where the Roman Empire is is depicted as the iron legs of the great idol of temporal power mm -hmm. and um and slowly those iron legs uh begin to mingle with clay and then they become entirely clay so that the feet of the idol are just clay and and saint jerome says well that's um that's the barbarians uh, we're, we're mingling more and more with the barbarians until we're just going to become the barbarians mm -hmm. and um and and the uh the, the sort of chief minister of the of the Western Emperor at the time was was a barbarian called Stilchio, and he was very offended. And uh, but fortunately, Saint Jerome was uh, was hanging out in Bethlehem, so he couldn't do anything about it. <laughs> and when the next volume of Saint Jerome's um, works came out, um, uh, he he alludes to this and says that people who were offended by his remarks about the clay should direct their their complaints to the prophet Daniel and not to him. <laughs> Um, and, uh, Easy to say from how far away it was. <laughs> so the um, so as as I say, the, the situation is getting more and more severe until eventually the kind of just isn't a Roman army anymore. There's just a bunch of barbarian tribes. Um, you know, it's become like McDonald's. You know, there's a parent company based in Rome, and it sells franchises. You can be the Roman army for, <laughs> for a certain amount of cash um, and uh, in this part of the empire. I'm now picturing and, Ronald uh, McDonald as Gladius Maximus Aurelius. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so eventually it, 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 it doesn't work. I mean, 
several things happen in 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 uh we talked last time about how theodosius mm -hmm. ended up as emperor uh, because there was because the pre the previous emperor who was an arian was killed in battle at the battle of adrianople mm -hmm. well that happened because in 376 a bunch of gothic barbarians mm -hmm. Who were actually running away from the Huns? So it was a the Huns who were scarier barbarians had turned up in what's now the Ukraine, and the Goths who in those days lived in what's now the Ukraine were terrified because they were much more scary barbarians than them. So they they decided to emigrate to the Roman Empire and said, "We can come and fight for you." And the Romans are like, "Well, why would we want you to fight for us when you're running away from the people that we would be asking you to fight?" Um, and uh, so the Romans tried to. Try, they thought, "Well, we can't. They've all turned up with their wives and their kids and everything, and and we can't just say go." away because we don't have enough people on the frontier just to get rid of all of these goths in one go so we'll invite them in offer them a big dinner party and then poison the leaders at the dinner party and then we can massacre them and it'll be fine and Everybody break <laughs> sorry one two three break <laughs> <laughs> so the um uh, unfortunately you know the kitchen staff decided this was a bit uh, dishonorable and told some goths that they were all going to be poisoned and so the goths obviously went nuts and uh, and rampaged throughout the balkans and um and that's how the emperor valens ended up being killed um but poor old theodosius i mean he was sent over by um valens's nephews to try and deal with it um and he he did deal with it but it, it yeah it seems that it was kind of um tricky and uh, and it was more about kind of cutting off their supply lines and wearing them down and getting them to the negotiating table it was no kind of big victory of the romans against the goths because he just didn't have enough actual roman romans there in armor capable of fighting the battles necessary um so uh and and so he kind of stabilized the situation and then when he died in uh, 395 if i remember rightly um he divided the empire between his two sons, uh, Honorius and Arcadius. He put one of them in charge of the west and one of them in charge of the east. Mm -hmm. And that didn't that didn't sound like it was going to be a big permanent thing, um, because they, they the, the the empire had already a hundred years beforehand been administratively divided into an eastern and a western zone, and that wasn't supposed to be a permanent. You know, there's a lot of traffic back and forth between the two sides, and you know, people would be emperor of one side and then then take over the other side and sometimes do civil war sometimes not and um but uh, in the end it tended in the end it turned out to be a uh, it was never never reunited i mean it was considered a single united empire but they never and, and the reason why is because although he temporarily fixed the problem of the goths um he hadn't fixed the fundamental problem that there wasn't really a proper roman army there anymore and um and then on, uh, they think, historians think, on the 31st of December, uh, 406, the Rhine froze, sorry, 31st of December, yeah, sorry, I said December. Uh, the, the Rhine froze solid. Oh, wow. Um, which was really bad because the Rhine and the Danube were the frontiers in Europe of the Roman Empire. Yeah. And so they were rather relying on it not being solid. So it, um, so it turning into a motorway was not a good idea from a Roman point of view. And the the Vandals and the Alans, no relation, and the Swabi came pouring over the um uh, pouring over the Rhine into Gaul and anarchy ensued and basically they, they never recovered. And the, and one of the problems was of course you couldn't unlike now we live in the happy days of massive government debt the romans couldn't just borrow loads of money in order to get get them through the present crisis and wait they, wait they, they had no fed they didn't have a printing press <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> so if you've lost control of a couple of provinces for more than two or three years, that's it. You've lost that money. You can't sustain as big an army because you don't have the resources from that province coming in. So if you don't undo the reverses within a few years, they become very difficult to ever reverse. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, so that was uh, so uh, that was the kind of anarchy that was consuming the Western Roman Empire at the time of um, of the Council of Chalcedon, and um, uh, and the Eastern Roman Empire was was better off. It was richer um, uh, because it was just a richer area. I mean, the, the, the Western Empire was much more colonial in the sense that the Romans had conquered areas that weren't urbanised. They built their own kind of new towns, and they were sort of you know squatting on a pre-existing non-urbanized culture and you know that had developed over the centuries of roman rule but it was still not like the greek half of the empire which was much older than the romans themselves and had been prosperous and terribly important for a very very long time very wealthy so it was more resilient than the western half of the empire they could afford to you know hire more people to fight and and it was uh, it was more built up. It was it was more difficult for an area just to revert to barbarism, just under German barbarians instead of Celtic barbarians. Mm. Um, so the um, so so the, so the Eastern Empire hung on, but the Western Empire was 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 falling as the Council of Chalcedon was going on. And in fact, by um, by three seven six, sorry, excuse me, by four seven six, so a hundred years after the Goths had originally turned up on the Danube, um, the uh, Italy was being ruled by a barbarian general called Odoasa, who just had a bunch of puppet emperors who didn't really have any power. And um, in 476, he decided that, you know, this wasn't really worth the hassle. And he deposed the last Western emperor, Romulus Augustulus, um, and he sent his, uh, his regalia to Constantinople with a little bow tied around it and said, look, um, if, if, if I'm gonna be the nominal subject of an emperor i might as well be the nominal subject of a real emperor in constantinople as a pretend one in in rome or ravenna or whatever that'd be fighting so, words say again so fighting words <laughs> <laughs> so he sent it across to the emperor in constantinople now now uh, the emperor in constantinople wasn't quite who's called zeno wasn't quite clear what to do about this because um he uh that he actually hadn't recognized this Romulus Augustulus guy because there'd been so many coups and things in the West that, that he wasn't officially approving of the last Western emperor. He, he was officially recognizing the one beforehand who was called Julius Nepos, who was living in exile in part of the East. And so Zeno writes back and says, well, you know, um, <clears throat> excuse me, but actually your proper emperor is this Julius Nepos guy. So, 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 so you should be recognizing him as emperor. And Odoaster's like doesn't even bother to reply, and he just gets on with it. And um, and then a few years later, in in uh, 480, uh, Julius Nepos dies, and and um, and as they've completely lost control of the West anyway, uh, the the Eastern Emperor doesn't bother appointing a new pretend Eastern em uh, Western Emperor. So so that's it from from 480 onwards. There's only one Roman Emperor. And he is, and 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 he's not seen as the as the Eastern Emperor, and the post of of Western Emperor is vacant. He's seen as just the Emperor. Mm -hmm. So 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 the idea now is that the, the 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 parent company runs Roman Empire PLC runs um, uh, runs the Eastern half of the Empire directly, 
and then in the western half of the empire the theory is which most of the barbarians actually go along with is that they are franchisees who run their different little regions of the western empire um on franchise from the emperor in constantinople and partly this is because the empires existed for 500 years nobody knows anything else so their idea of what it means to be a legitimate ruler is to be a roman ruler so you have to be in some way uh, agreed to by the emperor in constantinople and the emperor in constantinople if he doesn't have the armies to take those provinces back he's kind of okay well we'll go along with that because it's less embarrassing than admitting that we've just lost half of the known world uh, in a fit of inadvertence um uh, so 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 that's the that's the weird situation and of course one of the um shortly after um shortly after um julius nepos dies in 480 uh, the um the the emperor in constantinople gets a bunch of ostrogoths so the goths have now split into two groups the visigoths and the ostrogoths and he gets a bunch of ostrogoths led by a guy who'd been raised in constantinople uh, called uh, theodoric he he gets him to uh go and uh, but he's a goth uh, he gets him to go and and conquer italy off Odoacer. um uh which he does mm -hmm. and and so he's he kind of takes over the franchise of italy but in a slightly more official way approved by constantinople and so there's this funny period from the end of the fifth century until um the 530s so about 50 years although it, it deteriorates at the end but um but but there's this funny period during which Italy is sort of being run with the approval of the emperor in Constantinople by this quite Romanized goth. Um, and uh, he doesn't really want to do all the complicated things involving the government of a complicated urban uh, civilization. So he, um, he, uh, he just runs the military end of things and he, he lives in Ravenna, which is the military HQ in the north of Italy, of the province of Italy. And, um, and he lets the old Roman senatorial families in Rome itself actually do all the kind of civilian government. And, uh, and this is great for the old senatorial families because they've been kind of pretend important people for hundreds of years. Um, the, the army has been running everything for centuries and centuries in the Roman Empire. And the senatorial families are unbelievably wealthy, but they haven't really been very important politically. And, and the empress haven't even lived at Rome for a very, very long time. So that so the senatorial families are suddenly actually running the show. And it's great. It's kind of like suddenly it's like the first century BC again. They're in charge, you know, and they, they, they feel important. And, and so they're actually they're quite pleased. And it's quite nice for the popes uh, because they're out of the reach of the emperors in Constantinople. So they can kind of they're still officially part of the sphere of authorized roman of the roman world but they're not quite within reach of the emperor in constantinople so the popes can kind of do whatever they like and and this is made a very important fact is is that almost all of these barbarians are arian heretics now the roman population have uh, abandoned arianism long ago by this point but the but, but the goths and and many of the other barbarians uh were were missionized by um a guy called Ulfilas, who was uh, sort of half Gothic, half Roman Aryan, and, uh, and and eventually it became a sort of badge of ethnic pride for the barbarians that they were Aryans as opposed to the um, as opposed to the the Romans, and so 
so they, they didn't even it wasn't a big theological thing i think um by then it was just a sort of you know my grandparents were norwegian so i'm a lutheran but your grandparents were welsh so you're a methodist whatever i mean so so it wasn't um so they didn't um so so they 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 these goths didn't consort religiously with the with the roman population in italy uh, and they weren't directly involved in internal arguments among the Catholics about theology. Um, so uh, so the, and they, they left the Pope alone, more or less, at least initially. Um, and so he could get on with um, taking quite a strong line with any naughtiness from Constantinople without the fear that, that imperial troops were going to turn up at his breakfast table the following morning and drag him off uh, uh, to the, to the, to the uh, other side of the Mediterranean. Um, and swimming so, with so the fishes. Go on. He'd be swimming with the fishes. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, yes. They're less concerned about that than they might otherwise be. So, um, uh, so that's that's the background in terms of the West, right? Now, in terms of the East, the the second big contextual thing you have to understand is that the Council of Chalcedon was a complete disaster from the perspective of the East. Um, uh, it didn't end the story at all. Um, basically. Uh, what the Latins um, and uh, what the sort of imperial authorities thought had happened at Chalcedon was that we've sorted out this business about one one nature of the incarnate logos. When we you know we we we're saying now that he's he's one hypothesis in two natures, and and it's all been sorted out. And you know Peter has spoken through the mouth of Leo, and everything's solved. And we hate Nestorius, and we hate Eutyches, and they're both wrong. And we're the glorious via media in the middle, uh, and and it's all over now. But it it didn't work out that way. Now we talked a little bit last time about why it didn't work out that way. One is because it was because so, the Constantinople made a renewed attempt to steal second spot in the church from Egypt, thereby you know reducing. Uh, to vanishing point, the chances of the Egyptians accepting the results of Chalcedon, but uh, but the other is that is that the, that um, basically the Nestorians got out the ticker tape. They interpreted Chalcedon as, "Yay, we've won! After all, we've snatched victory from the jaws of defeat." Um, uh, um, and they sort of interpreting the word nature um, a little bit like. Um, the, the, the Egyptians were they were saying you know yeah so two natures so basically Jesus of Nazareth is just a close personal friend of the second person of the Trinity and, 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 and the Chalcedonians as they're known the people loyal to Council of Chalcedon are like no 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 that's not what we mean at all but but the the uh, the people who were backing Cyril and of course Cyril is the good guy so I mean the census fidelium in the east is is with Cyril you know he's the one who's backing up that Our Lady's the Mother of God and we like Cyril so it's not just in Egypt it's it's all through lots of regions of the east they they they're looking at uh, particularly you know where they're speaking Greek mm -hmm. uh, because because that's where the terminology about about nature fusis and hypostasis and and usia is, is all confused and of course in the Latin West it's always been the terminology has always been very straightforward and so that also applies to the the, the European parts of the East uh, mm -hmm. which are also Latin speaking uh, mostly um, and uh, so the um, so, so the, the, the ordinary Catholic, as it were, is looking at these Nestorians celebrating and they're like, well, hang on, what's going on here? So, so they think the Council of Chalcedon is a disaster. So it's a little bit like, he says, treading on very dangerous ground here, but it's a little bit like after Vatican II in, the sense, that, um, uh, in the sense that 
people who really, really didn't like, um, well, how to put this right. So, so uh, there were people at Vatican II who were really dodgy. And those people uh, managed to get some ambiguous phrases into some of the documents. Mm -hmm. But in general, or I would probably say entirely, they failed to get in anything that was just outright false into mm -hmm. any of the documents. Mm -hmm. But what they thought was, if we put these kind of ambiguous phrases in, then afterwards, if we celebrate loudly enough about the fact that, yay, we won, then it'll become self-fulfilling. Everyone will interpret the council as 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 being a great victory for modernists, mm -hmm. and um, and and the people who are like, well, it is an ecumenical council, but modernism is bad. No one will pay any attention to them. They'll just see the cheering modernists over there, and all the people who hate modernists and don't have the time to pour through documents and make lots of distinctions will look at the cheering modernists and and lose it. So basically, that that's that's what happened after Vatican II. Is is that um is that uh, people are saying, well, technically, there isn't a problem here if you can distinguish this term from this term, but nobody's paying any attention to them because uh, all they can see is the cheering modernists saying, Jesus isn't God anymore, and you can marry blokes even if you're a bloke. Um, uh, they're, they're, they're like, ah! Um, and then the people who are like the, the ordinary pious Catholics who've been brought up rightly to be very, very hostile to modernists assume that if the modernists are cheering that loudly, there must be, there must be a very serious problem here. <laughs> um, uh, and... Um, so uh, very similar with Charles Eden. So, um, uh, so the, the the Nestorians start cheering it as a victory, and the um, the Egyptians who are already predisposed to be uh, very annoyed about the council, uh, any chance that they might accept it is completely lost, and and they're absolutely furious. And also ordinary pious people who were on Cyril's side and hostile to Nestorianism in other parts of of the Eastern Empire, they also are furious. So so in the um, in the f decades following Chalcedon, uh, it, it, it degenerates into chaos. You, you often have people being elected to different dioceses in in the east um, who are uh, who are overtly rejecting the Council of Chalcedon, and then in some dioceses where there happens to be a following for Nestorius or at least for the Antiochene school of theology, of which he is a particularly bad example, um, uh, we're, we're, we're going for people who, if they, sometimes they, usually they weren't actually endorsing Nestorius, because, I mean, Chalcedon had actually, you know, condemned Nestorius, so, mm -hmm. so as well as Ephesus uh, condemning Nestorius. Um, but at least they didn't, that even if they weren't actually endorsing Nestorius, they weren't condemning him, or if they were, it's through gritted teeth. Mm -hmm. And they were very keen on all the theologians that Nestorius was very keen on, and uh, so so everybody was kind of you know everybody was was it was a bad sign, and um, so the um, uh, the Roman emperors started to freak out about this because um, in the ancient world it's hard for us to understand this, but in the ancient world uh, they they had a much more vivid sense of of uh, of, of the necessity of. Um, of keeping God or the gods happy. So the reason why there'd been the brutal persecution of the Christians in the first place before Constantine converted is because it was thought that um, that uh, you know the gods are going to be very annoyed about these lunatics going around saying there's only one God and he's a guy from from Judea in the first century. Um, and uh, they, they were they were sometimes less annoyed about the Jews because they thought well the Jews are 
are, are following their ancestral religion of their particular god and okay they 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 think he's the only god and that's really irritating so you wouldn't want to have them at dinner parties because they'd offend everybody they'd refuse to eat most of the food anyway but but at least they're following their ancestral religion so you know uh so long as they don't try and rebel and seize control of the temple again then we'll just ignore them and let them get on with it right so that was the attitude to the to the jews but the christians were going around trying to persuade people to give up on their ancestral religions you know worshiping mercury or or Tutatis or, or whoever it might happen to be and and uh, and and start worshiping jesus of nazareth as the one true god and and so that was going to annoy mercury and Tutatis and isis and whoever else uh demon they thought was a god uh, that they were worshiping so they thought well well um uh we're um uh, that that's going to ruin the empire because if, if the gods are incredibly angry with the empire, then it's going to ruin the empire. So there's nothing, no, nothing for it. We're going to have to kill all these Christians. Mm -hmm. um, so that was in order to keep the gods happy. So so that was the the, the rationale behind the um, the original persecution. And then, of course, so when Constantine converts, he converts because he realizes Jesus of Nazareth is the one true God. And so actual victory um, and, and the prosperity of the empire comes with Jesus of Nazareth. Um, so, 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 so the idea... Uh, so once things start to go go a bit wrong with with the, the you know these the Rhine freezing and the Goths pouring in all that kind of thing, they think well you know we must be some, doing something wrong here. Um, so obviously the pagans, the remaining pagans, they're like yeah you're doing something wrong. You should be worshiping the pagan gods. Um, it's, it's it's not rocket science. Um, and uh, but obviously most people didn't uh, didn't think that. Uh, but but enough people thought that that Saint Augustine wrote the City of God. So the City of God is designed to refute the pagans who. Uh, you know his biggest work uh masterpiece but it's like climbing a mountain but you got to read it it's, yes. it's, it's, yeah yes. um and uh um but yes so he wrote that to say you know no don't be ridiculous paganism and it's, it's a wonderful wonderful book um and um so that so if we're going to exclude the idea that that it's it's because we should have remained pagans well then the, the 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 explanation for why things are going completely horribly wrong might well be that we've that we're not we're not squishing the heretics as vigorously as we should be right so um so the roman the roman emperors were, were very worried about the fact that people didn't agree as to what the true doctrine was and weren't uh, and only about half of the population of the remaining bit of the empire that they still controlled were, were accepting the council of chalcedon and um now now later on it sort of it gets worse and ingrained and it becomes a kind of nationalisty thing now it doesn't initially it's not at all it's, it's definitely theological there's there's hurt national feelings in egypt but but elsewhere there's lots of people who don't approve of the council of chalcedon and they're not they're not disapproving for nationalist reasons but but as as the situation doesn't get resolved over successive uh, centuries um uh, over about 100 years really uh, it, it begins to become that people who speak greek uh, which is the which is the sort of common language of the eastern half of the empire and uh, they are much more inclined to accept chalcedon and be loyal to the roman government but people who who speak the the local languages so people who speak coptic in egypt or speak aramaic in syria or whatever they they, they start to be the ones who reject Chalcedon. So it becomes a kind of nationalisty ethnic thing and become, therefore becomes even more of a, of a problem. Uh, it becomes a huge security problem for the Roman emperors. Um, 
but initially th they were more concerned about the theological question itself and how uh, backing the wrong wrong horse on that question or allowing a large chunk of the population to back the wrong horse on that question was going to offend God. Uh, but but it starts to as it gets as it sinks into the soil as it were it becomes entangled more and more with with ethnic and national questions and and that that's going to become a big problem when we get to Constantinople three. But um yeah so uh, so eventually uh, what happens is um, a, uh, a the Emperor Zeno the one who was sent uh, the the regalia of the now abolished Western Roman Emperor. He gets deposed um, uh, by in a coup uh, by a rival emperor who manages to hold on for a couple of years, and he decides to the rival um, decides to try and introduce um, uh, monophysitism again, and he says to the to the um, to the bishops of the Eastern Empire, right, one nature in Christ, uh, we'll forget about all this Charles Eden stuff, and uh, and then something happens which is. Um, which is a recurring problem, which is that all the Eastern bishops immediately say, oh, yeah, fine, where do we sign? Uh, okay, that's that's great, yep, Monophysitism, great, <laughs> we take Charles Seedon. And uh, so, so the, and of course, I mean, you yeah, know, this isn't just a problem with people who speak Greek. I mean, uh, I hate to break this to you, but there are quite a few time servers among the clergy, and, uh, and, 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 and some of them are, you know, more than one would like to hope. Um, are, are, are looking to see which way the wind is blowing, so that they can they can jump in that direction as fast as possible. So um, so he only he only manages to last a year or two, and and uh, Zeno gets back in there in in um, uh, in four eight two, um, but um, but Zeno's uh, a bit shocked about how how quickly everything turned round. Um, and and so he thinks, well, I, I need to do something about this. I mean, the situation is 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 it's shown how unstable it is. The fact that this could happen. So he does. He begins this horrendous process, which is going to go on for centuries after this, of emperors trying to come up with dodgy theological compromises in order to solve the problem, the row over the Council of Chalcedon. So he creates this document called the Henoticon. Mm -hmm. In 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 discussion with his uh, with the patriarch Constantinople, who's called Acacius. Well, well, uh, whether we should call him patriarch or not. Well, I'll just say, imagine the, the the until until the year until the ninth century, there are speech marks around the word the word patriarch. Um, so so anyway, um, so the uh, so the patriarch Constantinople, Acacius, he. Um, he, him and Zeno, they get together and, and they come up with this sort of ecumenical joint statement thing called the Henoticon. And uh, it basically, it, it, it drops all reference to um, one person in two natures and goes back to one person from two natures without commenting on whether he's in two natures. Um, and uh, it condemns uh, it condemns any um, which is not false, right? But it, it's just just leaving out a very important element of what the truth that was defined at Chalcedon, and um, it condemns anyone who uh, anyone who any heretics, uh, whether at Chalcedon or anywhere else, right? Now this is the real killer line, right? Because it, it's basically. It doesn't say anything about Chalcedon other than this one line, and it doesn't mention anything about Pope Leo and his tome, which had been acclaimed as, as, as spoken by St. Peter through Leo at Chalcedon, and which, as far as the West was concerned, was the absolute last word on the question. Um, 
so it doesn't say anything about them. It doesn't condemn them, but it doesn't make any reference to them. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and and, it, and then it says, and we condemn all heretics, whether at Chalcedon or anywhere else. So it doesn't say that the Council of Chalcedon is heretical, um, and it doesn't even say that there were heretics at the Council of Chalcedon. I'm sure there were. There are very few, very few bars in the world that there isn't a heretic in. Um, and uh, but the but the. Um, but, it, but it's it's condemned heretics whether at Chalcedon or anywhere else. So it's clearly deliberately insinuating mm -hmm. that the, the probably were, you and I know, we're not yeah. going to say it because this is supposed to be an ecumenical document, but you and I know that the, that, that the were, but we're not saying it, we're just saying that if the were, then we condemn them, you know. Um, and, uh, and, and so they think this is really clever. So this will allow the people who reject Chalcedon to agree, go back to the, to the, um, to the agreement that they had before, remember when John of F John of Antioch mm. uh, makes friends with Cyril of Alexandria. So it's going back to kind of that agreement, and and of course now, if you remember from last time, when when the whole thing was over, Dioscorus and his followers uh, actually looked at what Eutyches had said and were like, oh gosh, that's actually really terrible. So they actually condemned what Eutyches said. So. Um, so they thought, well, if we if, if we hadn't said that thing about two natures at Chalcedon, then we could have been okay. Um, so, so, so this is what Zeno and Acacius are thinking. So so we'll just kind of bracket it, you know, and, and nobody has to mention whether they think Chalcedon is a is a legitimate council or not. Um, and we'll just all agree to go back to what was agreed in in four thirty three, and. Um, and, but this this reflects uh, another abiding problem between the Chalcedonians and the non-Chalcedonians, which is that the, Ch the in general, apart from the Nestorians who are pretending that it was a big victory for them, the the, the non-Nestorian Chalcedonians, um, which of course would be all Chalcedonians, in fact, um, uh, they they think that they don't really disagree with Dioscorus and his followers. They disagree with Eutyches, but so does Dioscorus. So. So they think that it's really just an argument over words that has no real content, whereas the um, whereas the uh, the the non-Chalcedonians they can't admit that it's just an argument over words, because mm -hmm. that would that would sort of they would then be convicted of having of having devastated the church theologically just for the sake of vanity so they have to insist that it's a real substantial disagreement but of course that makes it really difficult to resolve because it isn't a real substantial disagreement so so you can't get down to the point where you can resolve the question because there isn't really a question to resolve when you when you when you it's just purely terminological but the non-chalcedonians can't admit that um but in in the meantime the Chalcedonians are burdened with these annoying Nestorians jumping up and down and cheering, um, who they who they really desperately need to get rid of. And um, now this this is made this is made worse by the fact that um, uh, by the fact that the Nestorians, uh, a number of the people who were associated with Nestorius and may or may not have been complicit in his errors, had been acquitted at the Council of Chalcedon. So so one of the things that these difficult uh, difficult questions around these two councils point to, which is helpful for our times, is it shows the limits of papal and conciliar infallibility, the sort of stuff that councils are infallible about and the sorts of, sorts of stuff that they aren't infallible mm -hmm. about. So, so people have a tendency, both with councils and with popes, to think, well, you know, the pope's infallible, so, you know, if he likes Stargate, I've got to like Stargate too. And, um, and Vatican II is infallible, 
um, at least when it chooses to say something definitive. Um, uh, um, and therefore, you know, if the fathers of Vatican II really like Babylon Five, I have to like Babylon Five. But but no, you really don't. You know, their their, their taste in in pasta, science fiction series, and football teams are not relevant to their right. So even if they discussed it at the council, unless they actually taught it, then it's not relevant. But but people aren't making that distinctions uh, that distinction at the time, right? So so there's there's three people particularly. Um, there's there's a guy called Theodore of Mopsuestia, who was long dead before the council. Um, long who, dead now. He's long dead now as well. Yes, but <laughs> he was long dead at, by the time Charles Eden happened. But he was um, he was uh, he was a sort of theological rock star of the Antiochian tradition. So he was revered by Nestorius and all of Nestorius's pals. And he had uh, not been condemned at Chalcedon. At Chalcedon. Actually, Chalcedon didn't say anything about him, really. But there were two others who were also followers of Theodore, as Nestorius was, um, who who had been condemned at the Latrocinium, at the fake Second Council of Ephesus, and who turned up uh, to try and get vindicated um, at Chalcedon. So, so these were um, Theodoret of Cyrus and Ebas of Edessa. Right, so it's difficult to remember all this. But anyway, so there's so the three the three problematic cheering Nestorians, one of whom admittedly is dead, um, are are um, or, or near miss Nestorians or whatever they are, are a, a Theodore of Mopsuestia, Theodoret of Cyrus, and Ebas of Edessa. And uh, Theodoret of Cyrus and Ebas of Edessa are still alive at the council at the Council of Chalcedon, and the Council of Chal and they've been condemned and deposed. By the uh, by the by the pseudo Second Council of Ephesus, so Chalcedon has to decide what to do about them. Now uh, Chalcedon is on a bit of a, of a, of a, of a it's kind of, kind of getting excited. We're, we're resolving everything here. We we we've got we've deposed Oscarus. We 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 hate that Second Council of Ephesus, the robber council, etc. Et and so these these two guys turn up and they, and they say we were deposed at the Second Council of Ephesus, it's not fair and, uh, and Chalcedon's like well, we don't like the Second Council of Ephesus we're going to restore you and uh, so they're restored to their seas but but they shouldn't have done that because they, they, they were, <laughs> if they weren't Nestorians they were very close to Nestorians and they'd written very rude things about Cyril of Alexandria and uh, and they, they, they refused to condemn Nestorius on various occasions and and they sort of given promises to condemn Nestorius and then not really done it. And so they were the they were the principal cheerleaders. You know, they were like the dodgy German theologians of Vatican II. They they were they were they were the, they were the principal cheerleaders among the Nestorians, going, Yay, Chalcedon, victory for us, which who were causing the problem. Mm -hmm. Um so so um uh so so the, the Chalcedonians really, really need to get rid of them. But in the meantime, and, and that was slowly being realised by the, the Orthodox Chalcedonians were realising that they were they were burdened by these near-miss semi-Nestorians or actual Nestorians, and they need to make it clear that they were not okay. But the problem was that they'd been kind of acquitted by Chalcedon. Now, now a council's failure to condemn someone is not actually a canonization of their theology or their writings. It's just a prudential decision on the part of the council. But people aren't making decisions like they aren't making distinctions like that at the time. Mm -hmm. So, um, so the um, uh, but but in the meantime, there was a more pressing problem, which is that um, which is that the pope uh, was was uh, the popes were several popes in Rome, um, including uh, Gregory the Great's granddad, uh, Felix the Third. Um, uh, they were like uh, furious about this Henoticon 
and furious about what Acacius had done, and um, and so they uh, they excommunicated Acacius, and and with him all the bishops who agreed to this ecumenical joint statement, the Henoticon. So so the entire Eastern Roman Empire was excommunicated by the popes, and and uh, in 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 earlier and later times the emperors would have just lost it and sent some troops in to bully the pope, but the pope but they couldn't do that because the pope was 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 being ruled by the Ostrogoths, so 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 they couldn't get there to get at him, and, uh, and in fact Theodoric, the ruler of the Ostrogoths, he thought well actually it's quite good for me. Uh, if if the Pope is in schism with the chaps in the east, because that will that will stop the, uh, the the Romans in Italy getting all nostalgic about the emperor and thinking about you know getting together a a, a GoFundMe page to to arrange for an, a, a new navy uh, so that the, the the Eastern Romans can come and free them from the Goths. So 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 the so the Goths were keen to protect the popes from any reprisals. From the emperor in Constantinople for refusing to accept his ecumenical initiative, and the popes were kind of like the senators who were getting all excited about being able to play play politician again after centuries of not really having any power. So the popes were also like, we can say what we like, and they can't touch us. So the so the um, so the popes were. Uh, hurling condemnations across the Mediterranean at uh, Constantinople, and Constantinople couldn't do anything about it. Um, and uh, it reminds me of my brother-in-law, who's a, who's a, he's an Aberdeen football fan, and uh, Aberdeen fans really don't like Rangers, which is the Protestant team in Glasgow. And he was at, he was at a Rangers Aberdeen match, and uh, and it was after the match. I think I think I don't know whether Aberdeen had won or it was a draw, but it certainly had, had not been good for Rangers. And uh, and he was with a bunch of other Aberdeen fans, and they were jeering at the Rangers, at the Rangers supporters. Um, and there was a kind of police cordon between the two of them, so the Rangers supporters couldn't do anything about it. And uh, and then, to my brother-in-law's horror, he he looked around and saw that all the Aberdeen fans had left, <laughs> apart from him. And the police cordon was now disappearing, and there was this horde of Rangers fans there. So, so it was a bit like that with the Popes. They were kind of like, yeah, Constantinople. But, they, but this, 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 the police cordon is going to disappear eventually. But we'll guess that. <laughs> so, um, uh, so the um, uh, yes, so um, uh, uh, so this occasion schism, it's called, called, and. Um, uh, and it's interesting because it, it led to a number of things uh, led to uh, sort of filling out of, of the concept of what Christian society should be like at the time because there was now kind of one emperor and um, and, and Theodoric uh, bought into this franchise idea. He, he writes to the Emperor Anastasius, who's one of the one of the later emperors in this period of, of the Acacian Schism. Mm -hmm. and he says, uh, he's describing the franchise theory. He says, he's uh, accepting it. He says, it says, our monarchy is an imitation of yours, a copy of the only empire on earth. Right. So, so this this is this is the theory that the that the, the the Christian emperor, the emperor in Constantinople, should be like the the leader of of, of the Christian world, um, the, the the head of the laity, and and the popes kind of accept this as well. They just think that he's a naughty boy at the moment. He needs to get his theology sorted out. So, so at the same time, Pope Galatius, who's, who's the pope in the um, the nineties of the fifth century he he writes to um he writes to anastasius and he kind of lays a very famous letter um uh normally called 
duo sunt two there are because that's the first line of the first phrase in the famous paragraph where he lays out the the the, the theory of the relationship between the the, the spiritual power the, the 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 hierarchy and the and the, and the the temporal ruler in a christian society and also the um uh the um uh, whereas for centuries the Roman Empire had slipped from being kind of civilian, a theoretically civilian regime in which, uh, at least in theory, the emperor was appointed by the Senate and the people, to being a sort of out-and-out military dictatorship, that had sort of began to change in at the same period. And Anastasius, this emperor, was, was a important instance of that because he, um, uh, because Constantinople was such a brilliant location for a city with these completely impenetrable walls surrounded on three sides by water with its own special deep water port which he couldn't get to from the outside so you could have a whole navy just sort of waiting there to be to be deployed whenever you wanted to so it's like the perfect capital city and uh, but one of the one of the consequences of that is that it, it never really falls to to external siege until 1204 at the earliest and even then they had help on the inside uh, so so in some ways really 1453 when it gets destroyed by the turks so i mean that's pretty amazing this is like a, and it's it's in an exposed position uh, mm. and yet it's it's brilliantly located so that you can't you can't take it so one of the reasons one of the, the big impacts of that is that you, you can't have a military coup so easily because the armies they can't get in Mm. So, so the uh, so the emperors become much more genuinely uh, acclaimed by the people in the city of Constantinople. So, there's this interesting transformation and, and kind of uh, a transformation of, of, of the Christian Empire, even though they're, they're naughty Christians who are in schism from the Pope at this point. But anyway, so um, uh, eventually, um, in 518, the Emperor Anastasius dies, and he is succeeded by Justin. Now, Justin is a Latin uh, who comes from the uh, European parts of the Eastern Empire. He comes from what would now be the uh, Republic of Northern Macedonia, I think it's now called. Recent agreement with the Greeks as to what it's going to be called. Um, and, um, uh, and he's from a very humble background. He's actually illiterate, but he's the head of the imperial bodyguard. And he manages to get himself in there as emperor. And he has a, he has a very, he's quite old at this point. He has a very bright nephew. Who's actually his real name is is Peter Sabatius, but uh, that doesn't sound posh enough. And he was actually a uh, he was actually a sort of goat herd or something when he was a kid because because he, he him and his uncle come from very humble background. But his uncle made it up to the top of the imperial guard, and then through a kind of fluke of politics, ends up as the as uh, mostly stage managed fluke by the clever nephew, ends up as um as the uh, emperor. And so the clever nephew decides to uh, to well pep. Peter Sabatius is just not posh enough, so uh, so he he changed his name to uh, Flavius Petrus Sabatius Justinianus, which sounds a lot more kind of you might think of me for emperor with a name like that. Um, and uh, so so he um, so but there but him and his uncle are both Latins and um, and they are uh, and they so they don't like this schism. They think people should shut up and and, and do what the Pope says. Um, uh, so, so they, they, and so, and also um, uh, Justinian, as he's as he's usually known, Petrus Sabatius. Uh, Justinian means the kind of the one of Justin. So it basically, just means Justin's nephew. Mm -hmm. So Justinian, um, uh, he's he has a very ambitious, and he he wants to um, he wants to reconquer all, all these lost and lost Western provinces. Um, so he he's very committed to the idea 
of um, of winning round um, the Pope and ending this schism, and 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 he he wants, unlike the Theodoric the Ostrogoth in Italy, he wants the Romans in Italy to be pining for the emperor and uh, plotting his return. So so if they're going to be doing that, he needs to end the schism because if they're thinking, well, we'd like the emperor to come back, but he's a nasty heretic, so you know, we'd probably best that he's on the other side of the Adriatic and we can forget about him. Um, uh, so 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 he wants the, all that has to go. So he needs to reconcile with the Pope. So him and his uncle get together, and they uh, they decide, decide on immediate reconciliation. So, so they contact the Pope, who at this time is called Hormazdus, exciting papal name, you know, Persian family background, and um, uh, and uh, and he's, they say he basically says, uh, "I'm bringing them all back in. You know what they're like. I'll tell them, and they'll capitulate straight away." So we we want to, we want to end the schism, and you can impose any terms you like. Um, and uh, and I'll make sure that they they jolly well submit to them, and um, so so Hormazdus is like yes absolutely. So that so they get together this thing called the formula of Hormazdus, which is a kind of mm -hmm. excruciatingly embarrassing for the Greek Orthodox nowadays. Um, I mean, it's very explicit about the, the sublime and untainted faith of the Roman See that was never been prevailed against etc. Et and 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 he says, and I don't just want <coughs> not only are you submitting. To the doctrine of the Council of Chalcedon, but I also want you to rub out from your commemoration of the dead all of those patriarchs of Constantinople who who were in who were in place during the schism, there to be forgotten about, left to the flames in which they now in which they now dwell, and um, and uh, and then this oath which we've written, you're going to make every bishop in the entire Eastern Empire sign this. And I want copies in duplicate, um, and uh, so the so so they they really they they see their moments and they they go for it. So um, so the popes are kind of oh that's great. Um, but on the other on the other on the other side, um, Justinian is uh, he's married um, to uh, this woman called um, Theodora, and uh, she is also from a really really humble background, and. Uh, it, it's not clear how dodgy her past is. She seems to have been the mistress of the governor of Libya at some point, and then he got bored of her. And uh, this was before she met Justinian. And uh, and then she um, and then she uh, things went badly for her, and she ended up as as an actress. Uh, and it's it's not it's not clear how much of an actual actress she was and, and, and how much of a courtesan or a prostitute she was. And one of the, one of the problems with this period is that, um, is that uh, there was this sort of official court historian called Procopius who wrote uh, major histories of the period, which is really handy. But he actually, uh, in which he goes on about how marvelous Justinian, because obviously, as, as you will have guessed, uh, eventually in 527, Justinian succeeds his uncle and becomes emperor. So the official court histories of this guy, Procopius, uh, are all about how marvelous Justinian is. Uh, but he really, actually, Procopius hated Justinian, and he hated Theodora, his wife. Um, and uh, he hated Justinian's best general, and he hated Justinian's best general's wife as well. So, so while he was writing these histories about the glorious achievements of Justinian, which were quite glorious, um, he, uh, he also wrote uh, uh, what's called the secret history, which is a kind of excruciating expose. It's absolutely lurid. I mean, don't let your kids get hold of it. I mean, it, it's, uh, it, it describes um, the, 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 the unbelievable uh, sort of 
it's sexual immorality and, and all sorts of other terrible allegations. You know, he sort of basically outright says that Justinian was possessed and, and, uh, at various points. And, and um, but he left it kind of, you know, locked up in a box, ready to be discovered after he died, so that he couldn't get into trouble for it. So, but that also means, you know, no one can sue. You know, so 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 whether or not these lurid, horrendous allegations against Justinian and, and Theodora are true or not. Uh, you know, no one's ever really going to know, uh, which is which is a bit naughty on Procopius's part. But I mean, one understands that offending the ruler of the known world can be dangerous. Um, <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> so, um, so. But anyway, uh, she 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 apparently had a very dodgy lifestyle. But but during the time of her greatest poverty, um, apparently the, uh, she was in Egypt, and and uh, the Monophysites had kind of taken pity on her and looked after her, and um, as a result. Theodora was a, was a, a really zealous uh, monophysite and, and, and rejecter of the Council of Chalcedon. Uh, but Justinian, but she was a real force of nature, um, and, uh, and Justinian thought she was amazing. Um, and, uh, and he actually got Justin to change the law to allow the nephew of the emperor to marry somebody from a very, very, very common background, um, uh, so that he could so, so that he could marry Theodora, and he he thought she was just amazing. So, but it actually helped him, and she was she had like a, a absolutely steel will, and, and famously in in um, uh, five three two, after Justinian had become emperor, there were these massive riots called the Nika riots, which were a bit like the Scottish football. Uh, there, were, there, were, there were huge riots between rival uh, chariot uh, supporters. There were the Greens and the Blues uh, who, who, who supported different teams in the Hippodrome in Constantinople. And it sounds ridiculous, but they made a huge impact on, 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 on world history, really, because um, cause they, they, they were often, you know, bringing down emperors and things like that. So, um, so, uh, but the, they, one reason or another, it took too long to explain. That they they both been offended. They both been offended by Justinian, and so and they were experienced rioters, and so they 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 combined their forces and turned on Justinian, and and the whole of Constantinople was was set ablaze. And Justinian basically had a kind of escape barge ready to just kind of go and flee and go and live somewhere in Italy or something and, and just forget about it and you know I used to be emperor and now I live in this little villa but it's okay I'm still alive um, and, uh, and and Theodora famously says you know abs you know what are you doing you pathetic man you know and, and she she says she says so it says some she says famously said purple is the best shroud meaning I will die an empress and I'll either die an empress in my bed or I'll be torn limb from limb by this crowd but I'm not going to die in a villa in Italy living in exile and um <coughs> you know it's like Hillary well that's a bit unfair but anyway so so the um so the um uh so Justinian grows a spine back and uh, and and he massacres the rioters and um so so in uh, but so it's a funny position because Justinian is he's uh, him and his uncle they've restored uh, unity with the Pope and they've restored the Chalcedonian position and their Latins and in fact um, Pope John the first comes and visits Constantinople and um, and uh, it's really under when Justin is still emperor and and, and the the whole population of, of Constantinople go out and meet him at the twelfth mile post and um, and the emperor just Justin prostrates himself in front of of, of Pope John so it's, it's um, so I mean it's really dramatic stuff mm -hmm. uh, no I don't think any Western emperor in later history ever did this. <coughs> and then um, and then he, John is sort of cheered into Constantinople and they let him celebrate the Roman rite in Latin in the Hagia Sophia. 
the Cathedral of Constantinople on Easter Sunday, and he crowns Justin uh, um, on Easter Sunday. So I mean, it's it's like amazing stuff. I mean, this is like this is this is this is Galatius when he wrote his thing about the proper relationship between the spiritual being above the temporal power. I mean, this is exactly the sort of thing he had in mind. That he would have been delighted, and. Um, so, so on the one hand, Justin uh, and his regime, dating back to his uncle, Justinian and his regime, dating back to his uncle, um, is very much associated with Chalcedonianism and the Latins and being loyal to the Pope. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, his, his wife is, is notoriously committed an offersite. So, so Justinian is in a, in a kind of um, is in an ideal situation to try and resolve the problem because uh, because he he he's. He's got the sympathy, sympathy of the monophysites to some extent because they know that he's madly in love with a monophysite woman, um, and uh, and on the other hand, he's got the sympathy of the Latins and the Chalcedonians because of his own background and convictions. And he's also quite highly educated because he, his uncle, as soon as he started to rise in the imperial service, made sure that the nephew got a good education, whereas Justin remained illiterate to the end of his days. Um, so the um, so he's got a lot of theological ideas of his own. Um, so he um so he he wants to resolve the, and he and you know like most chalcedonians he thinks that it's really uh uh that there isn't a substantial disagreement here what what's going on is it's a disagreement over words so um so justinian tries to have um uh and just justinian you got to understand this he's very committed to the idea of being a really amazing roman emperor so he he he's and he does he ticks every single box so he he builds the largest church in the entire world because he has to rebuild the Hagia Sophia because it gets burnt down uh, during the Nika riots um they're called Nika riots you know like Nike the sports brand means victory right so so that's what the that's what the the, the chariot fans used to sit, shout in the arena when in in the um hippodrome uh, during the races and they used that as their kind of as their as their cheer when they were trying to kill justinian but as i say in the end they lost but um but so, so they burnt down the Hagia sophia so so justinian rebuilds it i don't know if you've ever seen a picture of or, or but the Hagia sophia it was the largest covered space on earth until uh until the 11th century um and uh, it's absolutely amazing building it's a very famous uh cultural historian convert to um Oh, I've seen the, I've seen the photos of the new one. I thought you were going to ask the photos of the original one. I'm going, yeah, no, I haven't no, seen that no, one. No, no. Yeah, yeah, but the, yeah. So the current one that's now been turned into a mosque, alas, since 1453. But but uh, but it was the largest church in Christendom, the largest covered space on earth, and it's just an amazing building. And uh, so, but he Justinian does spoiler uh, managed to reconquer big chunks of the Western Empire. And um, and he also saves Roman law because the, the whole structure of Roman law is kind of falling apart because there is no, you know, the, the world is, is overrun by barbarians and the, the kind of the, the basis on which it was social basis on which it was established is falling apart. So so Justinian has it all codified into a single uh, easy to use system, uh, which which becomes the classic uh, sort of texts of roman law that goes down to later centuries so he he codifies the law he builds the biggest church in the world he wins lots of victories and conquers all this stuff back so the the, the fourth box he needs to tick is to hold a triumphant ecumenical council that's what you have to do as a roman emperor so so steve if you ever happen to become a roman emperor remember the four things conquer lots of provinces hold an ecumenical council build the largest church in the entire world and uh you know issue lots of laws dear diary so, <laughs> so um so he uh he um 
uh, he begins, uh, particularly after the riots, when he's, you know, he's the king of the ashes. So he wants to, he wants to kind of restore his reputation. And so not only does he begin this big building program, but he, he gets his generals to start plotting the reconquest of the West. And, um, and he, he, he succeeds. Um, uh, he, he, he sends a, an army to North Africa, which has been ruled by the Vandals for a hundred plus years. And, uh, and, and with amazing rapidity, they, they reconquer it. And, and, and his greatest general, Belsarius, has this huge Roman triumph in Constantinople. And they, they, they drag the Vandal king behind his chariot. And then they, they throw him in the dust in front of Justinian in the in his balcony in the Hippodrome. So like the Romans are back. You know, all that, all that Gothic stuff was a blip. <coughs> and uh, so, so then they, they, they launched the reconquest of Gothic Italy. Now, uh, Gothic Italy is in a state of, 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 of a terrible condition by this point because the ending of the schism with the Pope um, has meant that, as, as mentioned, uh, the, the Romans in Italy are like, yes, we want the emperor back. Yes, this is good. We like this guy. He's our guy. He speaks Latin as his first language. He understands what it's all about. So, so, so Theodoric, who had been getting on really well with the uh, Italians, <clears throat> now becomes completely paranoid. And in fact, the reason Pope John was there for this amazing trip to Constantinople is because... Um, Justin had issued a law uh, saying that no one who was a heretic, including, of course, Arians, could hold office anywhere in the Roman Empire. Now, uh, officially, Th uh, Theodoric is supposed to be ruling Italy because he's got a piece of paper from the emperor. So, so, so this law is completely undermining his authority. And uh, so Theodoric is absolutely furious. And uh, so he, he sends Pope John uh, across to Constantinople to try and get these laws repealed. And in fact, Justin is quite quite easygoing about this and and largely does agree to to repeal them with most of their effect for Italy anyway in order to make because of the particular difficult situation there um, but he doesn't one one of Theodoric's demands was that people who had who had since the laws were passed converted from Arianism back to Catholicism should be allowed to return to being Arians and that was too much for the emperors like no 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 not having that so 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 Pope John comes back with most of, of, of the demands met, but Theodoric's just become degenerated into crazy paranoia by this point. So he, he locks up Pope John in prison where he dies, um, uh, obviously which goes down like a lead balloon with the, um, with the Romans in Italy. So it completely ruins the relationship between the Romans in Italy. And, and also the great martyr, philosopher, theologian and statesman, uh, Boethius, who we mentioned last time, who, mm. who, who solved lots of uh, theological problems, um, he uh, he had been sort of chief minister to Theodoric, and, and Theodoric was fine about about the fact that he was a militant Catholic. But now he was paranoid about militant Catholics, so 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 uh, Boethius is dragged off into prison and eventually clubbed to death. And, and, and he was planning to translate the complete works of Aristotle, the complete works of Plato into Latin with accompanying commentary, concluding with a grand synthesis of all philosophy and theology. So basically he was planning to do like uh, the life's work of Thomas Aquinas plus all of the translators uh, of, of the 12th century uh, in his own lifetime. And, and that was all kind of rather dramatically reduced by the fact he was waiting to be clubbed to death so instead he wrote the masterpiece the consolation of philosophy all about the nature of suffering and evil and and how that's compatible with with um divine providence wonderful book but 
somewhat smaller than the uh, opera Omnia of Thomas Aquinas, which is more what uh, Booth is planning to write. Um, and um, so, so things are really bad in, in Gothic Italy. So, so anyway, Theodoric dies in his bed, and um, and then there's a sort of succession crisis, and uh, and and Justinian's like great succession crisis. That's exactly the kind of thing we need here. So he sends in his uh, he sends in uh, his armies led up by Belsarius into Italy. Now, uh, so so um, eventually, um, uh, Belsarius reaches and conquers Rome on the 9th of December, five three six. Now you've got to follow me here, right? So, mm -hmm. so, so just before he gets to, to just before the 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 Italian campaign of the of the Emperor in Constantinople of Justinian to reconquer Italy, um, really gets underway. When 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 the 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 Romans. Uh, had reconquered Sicily, but not mainland Italy. Um, the then king of the Goths didn't last very long because there were lots of arguments among them. Um, uh, he's like, we need to get make sure we have a pro-Gothic pope in there as soon as possible, um, uh, because you know that that's what maintains relations. And uh, so he um, he gets this guy Simplicius in as pope, um, and. Um, so when Belsarius arrives, there's there's a, there's a, a bit of tension between uh, between Belsarius and the, Ro the 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 newly arrived Romans and the Pope because the Pope is definitely a kind of Gothic candidate and they're not completely happy with um, you know they're not they're not completely happy with with uh, sure about his loyalty to the to the regime in Constantinople now but Simplicius is entirely entirely uh, um, uh, entirely friendly about the whole thing but he um uh and he accepts belsarius and that's fine but the, the the campaign doesn't go quite as easily as it did in north africa um and the goths are soon besieging rome again and uh, so so question so belsarius is hauled up in rome with the pope being besieged by the goths and it's the pope that the goths had installed before the romans got there so so there's a lot of tension building up there now um uh, in the meantime, uh, there's there's been tension between the popes and Justinian because Justinian has held these discussions in Constantinople to try and uh, reconcile the Monophysites, and um, he manages to get a few Monophysite bishops in there, and and they um, and that they have these discussions about the question, and the problem is that in the end the Monophysites, because there isn't really a, a genuine substantive. Um, uh, problem down there, and especially because Justinian is willing to condemn those three Nestorian or semi-Nestorian theologians. He, but he sees part of the solution to this is to condemn those guys who were acquitted at Chalcedon. Mm -hmm. He wants to find some way, or oh, they're dead now, but he, he wants to find some way of of condemning them, which will uh, uh, which won't cast uh, the authority of the Council of Chalcedon into disrepute. But which will restore, which will reassure the Monophysites that the Chalcedonians are not secret Nestorians. So, so that that kind of comes out of the meeting that, that if that were done, and this ends up being called the three chapters dispute because the, by chapters they mean uh, extracts from the writings of these three guys, mm -hmm. and, uh, and 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 what Justinian wants, uh, and what the Monophysites would definitely like to see happen. I'll be they're not promising that they're going to re reunite if it does happen but what the monophysites would like to see happen 
is is that for the for the uh, these writings of of these three theologians to be condemned posthumously, and Justinian's kind of up for that, and he's also up for he's he's up for uh, going as far as you possibly can without repudiating Chalcedon in using the kind of language that Saint Cyril used. So he's willing to actually use the expression. Um, the one incarnate nature of, of the lot of the of the divine logos, right? Um, and so long as you know it's explained that that doesn't contradict uh, what Chalcedon was saying, and and it's because the term nature is being used in in a different way, he's willing to use that as a kind of official Catholic expression that's that's okay. So long as you understand that that doesn't mean that Christ doesn't have two natures, mm-hmm. um, and uh, he he wants to use uh, he wants to up the the you know we talked last time about the communication of idioms you know. Mm-hmm things like God God bled on the tree and all that kind of thing. So he wants to emphasize that the 12 anathemas of Cyril are a key part of Catholic orthodoxy. And he wants to, to uh, say things like one of the one of the Holy Trinity died on the cross. And these are things which are unacceptable to the followers of, of Theodoret and, and Theodore of Mopsvestia and Abus of Edessa, right? So He's emphasizing that Chalcedon is a way of regularizing the terminology. It's nothing to do with giving into the Nestorians. And uh, so, um, but, but, um, but they don't, uh, they don't, the Monophysites don't actually agree. They, they kind of say, you know, they, they're willing to take the concessions, but they're not willing to sign on the dotted line. Um, and, um, uh, and, and the, the Patriarch Constantinople starts to sort of wobble a bit and becomes quite impressed with, with some of the doctrine of the Monophysites, and um, so so Rome has ended up in a in a dispute over the the status of the Patriarch of Constantinople, um, and and annoying Theodora, um, the emperor's wife, mm-hmm. who we've spoken about, and um, so uh, so it's not clear exactly what happens in the besieged Rome. Uh, it's not clear whether or not um, it really is that the Pope is secretly conniving with the Goths or whether it's really that he's not seen as sufficiently pliant to uh, to the ecumenical ambitions of um, of Justinian. But he gets accused of plotting with the Goths and he is deposed. And uh, he's then taken away into exile uh, to uh, Asia Minor, to actually the hometown of St. Nicholas, uh, Santa Claus, um, uh, he's, he's he's taken off there, um, but the um, but the uh, local bishop there is is a bit unhappy when he meets the deposed pope. He says he thinks that he's been badly treated and he hadn't actually done anything wrong, and he starts to appeal to Constantinople, which is nearby, um, uh, to say you know this this needs to be something needs to be done about this. This guy this guy's been unfairly treated. So so the um, uh, so the emperor is like, oh no, this is becoming a liability. So he's he's sent off. Uh, the poor deposed Pope Simplicius is sent off to a tiny island um, in the uh, Tyrrhenian Sea on the other side of Italy. That like there's almost nothing on this island, and he's basically left there to starve to death. So literally, so within a year, that the, the, the whether he is the Pope or he isn't the Pope, um, uh, he is at this point. He he star he's starved to death. Now, in the meantime, the papal ambassador to Constantinople, who is called Vigilius, who gets on very nicely with Theodora, uh, is sent by Justinian back to Rome to replace this deposed pope. And he gets to Rome and he is uh, elected as pope. So, so this is a, 
a cause of difficulty and controversy in subsequent years because he's elected Pope while poor El Simplicius is still alive and is being kind of bossed around the Mediterranean to find a sufficiently barren rock for him to die on. Um, and um, so the uh, Vigilius is seen as, as, as a bit shabby, as a bit of a sort of government stooge. And, um, and and not having done anything about the horrible fate of his predecessor, so um, so he's uh, so he's now installed as Pope in Rome, and uh, we 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 you know we have to hold that he was the Pope because uh, otherwise it would undermine papal succession. Um, uh, so so I mean this happens actually quite a lot in in papal history that that popes often uh, acquiesce in their deposition. Um, uh, even if um, even if they're not happy about it, um, uh, in order to allow the the Roman Church to elect somebody else, because otherwise you end up with a kind of weird situation where you've got to try and work out whether the Pope's dead or not, and he's thousands of miles away, uh, and you don't know what to do about electing a new Pope. So, so a lot of popes in papal history have acquiesced in their depositions, but it certainly creates casts a shadow over the um, over the appointment of Pope Vigilius. So, um, uh, but the problem is, um, although by uh, 340, um, the uh, Belsarius has completed the conquest of Italy, um, the following year in 341, an absolutely terrible plague descends on the Mediterranean. It's called the Plague of Justinian. And uh, it's like the Black Death in the 14th century. Um, huge numbers of people die, some vast percentage of the population of the Mediterranean. And it really... Um, it really undermines Justinian's uh, reconquest, um, and Justinian had 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 bought essentially with huge amounts of gold a perpetual peace treaty with the Persians before he launched his reconquest in order to ensure that he wasn't getting stabbed in the back while he was uh, while he's turning his attention to the to the Persians, he's turning his attention to the Ostrogoths rather, um, and uh, but once this huge plague descends, it's just too much for the Persians. They're like, I know, you know, only ten years ago we signed a treaty of perpetual peace and and promised in the uh, in exchange for huge sums of money that we were never going to be nasty to the Romans and invade them and stuff. But look at them; they're all dying in the streets. This is just such a wonderful opportunity. How can we possibly not take it? And uh, so the so the. Uh, so the Persians um, declare war on the Roman Empire again, and at the same time the Romans are all dying of this plague. And uh, so the um, so in the end it takes decades to reconquer Italy, and, and huge numbers of people die, and everyone's thoroughly miserable about it. By the by by the end of it, uh, the Italians are like, well, that was was that really worth it? Because the 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 the, the, the peninsula is completely devastated, and Rome gets besieged three different times. And it's not fun being besieged, um, uh, you know, because you know you're being starved to death, and you know it's pretty horrible, and and it, it gets nasty at the end if if they get in, and um, so Vigilius is not best liked by the um, not best liked by the Roman population anyway, because he's involved in the shady deposition of his predecessor, um, and his population are also he's very strongly associated with the government, and uh, and the the. Um, and they were sort of initially ready to hang out the ticker tape and and, and the flags for the arrival of the um, of, of the uh, of the legions uh, such as they are from um, from the east. But but now they're thoroughly fed up of them, um, and uh, and the um, and they're not uh, and and you know there's there's a grain problem. They're not getting enough food, and uh, so so Vigilius is is beginning to feel very uncomfortable, um, and at the same time. Um, uh, Justinian is beginning to panic because um, uh, he's he's uh, he's got a bit frustrated with the Monophysites 
and uh, he started trying to make sure that, that everybody who holds the major sees is definitely a Chalcedonian and is and so when when he eventually holds his council to try and resolve everything he's going the votes are going to go the right way so he he deposes uh, Theodosius the patriarch of of Alexandria for not being a Chalcedonian and uh, this deposed patriarch of Alexandria sneaks off to Thrace so that that's the area just beyond Constantinople in Europe, sort of Bulgaria, sort of area, as it would be later. And he, um, and he ordains this guy uh, Jacob um, uh, as a sort of wandering bishop. This is in, uh, I think, this is in uh, when I remember, um, is in um, five four two, if I remember rightly. Um, and uh, so, so his job is to go and create a parallel monophysite hierarchy. Right now, that's a big problem because up to this point, um, the, the the Chalcedonians and the anti-Chalcedonians have been competing to get control of the key dioceses in the Eastern Mediterranean. Um, but they've all been playing the same game. If you see what I mean, they, they want to have the emperor on their side, and they want to get as many dioceses as they possibly can, and then they want to kind of bully the pope into accepting their position, and then it'll be game over, and they will have won. That's what the anti-Chalcedonians are hoping for. They're hoping that. In the end, Chalcedon's going to be seen as one of these fake Aryan uh, councils that they had in the fourth century and just be forgotten about. And everyone will accept that, that Ephesus too was a real council and it will be over. But but at this point, they realise Justinian's very zeal to come up with a solution has caused them to think that that it's never going to get solved, that they're, they're never going to get the whole empire and the whole church back for their cause. So they're going to have to start a new church of their own. And of course, that's really panicking Justinian, because that means that the, the the thing is going to become absolutely institutionalized and completely insoluble. So he he really wants it fixed by this point. So he uh, takes Virgilius uh, from Rome to Constantinople. He decides we're going to have a council, um, and we're going to we're going to condemn every possible um, every possible. Uh, Nestorian interpretation of Chalcedon. We're going to condemn these three dodgy theologians, and um, and and we're going to give the Monophysites nothing that they can possibly complain about, uh, apart from the fact that they still have to accept that Chalcedon is a legitimate council. And um, so, uh, so Virgilius is probably quite happy to be uh, to be taken out of Consta out of Rome, where he's very unpopular, and uh, and he's he's taken over to Constantinople, and. Um, and uh, Justinian meets up with him uh, in private and says, look, this is what we're going to have to do. Uh, we're going to have to condemn these three theologians that were kind of left alone by Chalcedon. And, um, and we're going to have to um, we're going to have to define that it's OK to say one nature of the word incarnate. And, um, and, and this is the deal, basically. And uh, the problem is that um, a lot of people in the West think if if these guys were acquitted by Chalcedon they, they they can't be condemned otherwise that's basically condemning Chalcedon but Virgilius really wants to go with this but he but he's he's really nervous because he's already very unpopular that lots of parts of the west are going to go into schism and in fact in the end lots of parts of the west do go into schism it's one of the very rare occasions in church history where where the latin christians decide that the pope is has let them down and 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 go into schism from him, uh, although that, that this has, 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 hasn't happened yet. So initially, 
um, uh, Virgilius agrees that he's going to condemn the three chapters. And um, uh, and and this Virgilius's nephew, he's not well served here. Virgilius's nephews come with him, but Virgilius's nephew disapproves of the condemnation of the three chapters. And Virgilius agrees quietly with Justinian that when it comes to it, he's going to condemn the three chapters. And in order to try and forestall this happening, uh, Virgilius's nephew leaks the documents to everybody so that everyone completely loses it and starts starts you know uh, uh, writing to, to Virgilius to tell him what a, what a lily-livered um, dodgy pope he is and Virgilius freaks out and says that he was kind of coerced into doing it and he doesn't really mean it and Justinian's absolutely furious because he as far as Justinian's concerned they agreed and it wasn't coerced and, and so 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 Justinian comes to see um comes to see uh, Virgilius in a, in a white rage and um and eventually uh, he gets Virgilius to swear an oath in front of witnesses that when it gets to the actual council, he will condemn the three chapters. Now, um, there might have been a sort of procedural grounds on which um, Virgilius might have tried to get out of this, which is he, he might have tried to claim, as it happens, this isn't true, but he, and it, he might have tried to claim that it's just wrong to condemn someone who's already dead, you know, you can't convict a dead person of a criminal offence, right? So he's saying, so, so, and, and Virgilius is kind of whispering this that you know, says, I'd love to help you here, um, Justinian, but you know, it's just not real on to condemn dead people and all that kind of thing. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, the problem with that is that um, ten years earlier. Um, that I don't know whether Justinian did this deliberately in order to get things ready um, for this eventuality, but um, there'd been a, a spat over the um, over some uh, ascetical writings that were heavily influenced by Origen among certain monks, mm -hmm. and, um, uh, and and Justinian had got the then Pope to agree to a solemn condemnation of Origen and a number of propositions taught by Origen, uh, which were anathematized. Justinian drew them up, and the Pope agreed to them, um, and. Um, so Origen was long dead, and the Holy See had already agreed to his condemnation. So, so that 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 boat had sailed. There was, it wasn't really possible for uh, for Virgilius to to, um, to to take this route. Now, of course, he could uh, could have argued, I suppose, that uh, in fact Origen had died uh, not in communion with the See of Rome or the See of Alexandria. So although he hadn't been condemned on those specific charges, he did die excommunicate. Mm -hmm. But it was, it was a much shakier ground uh, than, than it might have been because of this, this condemnation of origin that had already occurred. So eventually in, 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 uh, in um, 553, the uh, Second Ecumenical Council of Constantinople is convened in Constantinople, um, in the Hagia Sophia, and... Um, uh, it's in the patriarchal residence attached to the Hagia Sophia because um, there weren't that many. I mean, it was like a hundred and something bishops, but it, mm -hmm. it, if you put them all in the Hagia Sophia, it would, they would have looked very small. Um, but uh, so, so, so they do it in the patriarchal residence next door. Um, and uh, things have got. And Virgilius really doesn't want to go because he doesn't want to. He thinks he's going to be disowned by the Latins if he agrees to this. And he, 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 but he. So, and, and there's been a series of, of embarrassing incidents. Justinian tries to have him arrested. He's, he's rescued by a bunch of 
of, uh, of, of Chalcedonian senators and, uh, and, and, and ordinary people. And eventually he, he, he sort of barricades himself into the papal residence of the, the papal ambassador's residence in Constantinople. And then he sneaks across the Bosphorus to the church where the Council of Chalcedon had been held. And he barricades himself in there. And then eventually Justinian talks him into going back to the papal ambassadorial residence in Constantinople and, and staying there, but he's still basically under house arrest and he's refusing to have anything to do with the council. And um, so the council begins and uh, and they're all quite happy, you know, because Justinian's been carefully making sure that it's his guys in all the Eastern seas. And uh, it's as with all of these early councils, there's very, very, very few Latins uh, resident uh, at the council at all and um, so so it's all his guys and they're basically agreeing to it so they get together these these anathemas which make it very clear historians sometimes call it neo-chalcedonianism um, I mean it makes it very clear that Chalcedon is agreeing with Cyril but using Latin terminology mm -hmm. it's not at all Nestorian and uh, and they go and, and they canonize the three chapters that they condemn that they condemn the the three chapters of these three theologians, and um, and uh, and Justinian reveals that um, that he's got this oath uh, um, uh, tucked away that, that the Pope has has sworn to um, to condemn the uh, the three chapters which he's now reneging on, and uh, so the the Council uh, really loses it with the Pope, and um, and they remove him from the diptych. So the um, so the diptych is like a, is like like a two bits of wax mm -hmm. joined together with hinges that are propped up on the uh, on the altar, um, uh, and it's it's like a writing wax writing tablet, and uh, and and you inscribe in it the names of the people you're supposed to pray for in the liturgy. So so a sign that you were in schism in the ancient world was when you squished out the name of the person that you were in schism with. So that so that this ecumenic sitting ecumenical council uh, squishes out Pope Virgilius's name from the diptych. Now they say, and this is again sort of very post Vatican II SSPX sort of. I mean, not that the not that the SSPX are, 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 are <laughs> uh, do this, but uh, but I mean it's these kind of technical arguments type things. Mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, they say we're not excommunicating the Church of Rome; we're just no longer commemorating uh, the, this particular Bishop of Rome because he's very naughty. But we we we're okay with the Church of Rome in general and the papacy as such. But we're very very annoyed with Virgilius. So the um, so they remove his names from the uh, from the um, Diptych, they they complete the council. They issue these anathemas, including a rather marvelous anathema of origin, um, uh, the uh, which, which lots of, of, of people who mo modern people who are enthusiastic about origin seem to forget about. There's there's an anathema which lists all the worst heretics of all time, um, and it says, and it, it not only anathematizes them, but it says if anyone does not anathematize Arius, Nestorius, Eunomius, Macedonius, and Origin. With all their wicked and false doctrines, <coughs> um, uh, let them be anathema. So it doesn't just anathematize them; it anathematizes anyone who doesn't anathematize them. So it's the most aggressive anathematizing canon of any ecumenical council. Um, and uh, so, yeah, it's, it's very, very vigorous. Um, and um, so then, as the bishops go home, and, and Virgilius is left there under house arrest in Constantinople. And uh, eventually, towards the end of 553, he sort of breaks down and, and, and 
and writes a letter to the Patriarch Constantinople and says that he was probably wrong not to agree to uh, condemn the three chapters and 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 actually perhaps he should have done that and he's terribly sorry about all the fuss and uh, and then in 554 uh, he writes to Justinian and formally um, ratifies and enacts um, the Second Council of Constantinople and uh, and then um, then Justinian says okay then you can go home now to your warm reception in Italy and uh, so he uh, so he he heads off um, I think it's uh, what's it is it the uh, I don't remember what day it was but anyway he uh, he heads off and um, and he gets as far as Sicily and uh, he's sort of dawdling a bit in Sicily because he, he he's um, because he's not looking forward to his reception when he gets home to Rome and uh, and he dies there and that's the end of Pope Virgilius. <laughs> so, um, so it's pretty exhausting, um, uh, pretty exhausting business. The Second Council of Constantinople, and, and and it does, uh, it does, um, and it, it immediately causes a schism in the West. So, lots of uh, the, the 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 diocese of Aquileia, which was a really big deal in those days, um, uh, goes into schism from Rome, mm -hmm. and and various other. Parts of the West um, uh, join in because uh, they're really annoyed and they see this as an undermining of Chalcedon. But um, but I mean it, it has has many sort of lessons for church history in general because I mean it, it shows a number of things. It shows that the 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 fact that there were people at Chalcedon who made rash decisions about approving of certain theologians mm -hmm. just because they were on the other side of a of an argument, mm -hmm. uh, and even went so far as to decide not to condemn their writings. Um, doesn't uh, demonstrate that those theologians are orthodox because mm -hmm. um, you'll get all sorts of people nowadays they'll say this theoretical opinion in, in, in theological schools was held by respectable writers for many centuries so if you say that there's something wrong with it then that means that you're that means that you're undermining the authority of the church but Clearly, that's not true because of the Second Council of Constantinople, um, and and you'll you'll get people who'll say, well, well, this was clearly the prudential decision of um, of this council, and therefore it must be right. No, because the prudential decisions of of, of Chalcedon were infallibly reversed. They weren't infallible decisions of Chalcedon, but the doctrinal, dogmatic, infallible decisions of Constantinople too overthrew those prudential decisions of Chalcedon. Um, and, uh, you know, oh, we must always, you know, work with the mind of the reigning Pope and all that kind of stuff. Now, I'm not saying that you should abduct popes and leave them to starve to death on islands in the Mediterranean Sea or put them under house arrest in Constantinople. Those are very shady activities. Oh, put but that at the bottom. <laughs> <laughs> But clearly, um, uh, you know, these, these are infallible dogmatic definitions of an ecumenical council, and the Pope was opposed to them all the way through that council, and in the end they were ratified and solemnly defined. Mm -hmm. um, and also, an, another lesson uh, which is very important is just because the baddies are cheering about something doesn't excuse you from reading the small print and making sure as whether or not the baddies interpretation of it is abs absolutely uh, even if some of the baddies were at the council uh, you see what I mean so, so I mean I'm not saying you can't just map uh, you know Chalcedon or Constantinople 2 onto the controversy surrounding Vatican 2 that would be banal and ridiculous yeah. but, it, it, but it, it's it's just a, a warning that, that one should you know um, 
hang fire and 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 look at these things carefully and and not not allow um, the person personal associations like poor Athanasius found out with Apollinaris the fact that he was he was on his side against the Arians didn't mean he wasn't dodgy on other questions right and didn't mean he didn't need to be condemned in the end um, so and also you know the the lay role in in the church you know that this this um, you know Justinian was was definitely getting heavy-handed here but in the end the stuff that was solemnly defined was was his opinions mm -hmm. not not Virgilius's opinions and, and not some of these other opinions of people in the West that were solemnly defined so so um, we shouldn't instantaneously think that um, uh, that that the uh, the opinions of emperors are not always wrong the emperors are not always uh, not always the baddies and not always wrong they are usually the baddies and they are often wrong but they're not always the baddies and they're not always wrong and uh, so so it's also a warning against an excessively clericalist understanding of of, of of the church and the ways of providence so in a nutshell if uh, you don't know history you're doing the repeated <laughs> that kind of thing yes well, so Doc, I don't know, we don't quite have time to do Constantinople 3 this time yeah let's wait till next week <laughs> Okay, sure. <laughs> well, Doc, that was great. I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. We'll talk to you later. See you around.